0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. I'm Matt Emerson and I'm one of the members of the Board of Directors here at CBR and I'm joined by Luke Stamps, who's also on the Board of Directors. And The Center for Baptist Renewal is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we would invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Baptist Renewal. And of course, as my kids say all the time, uh, click subscribe, turn on notifications, tell your friends. They watch a lot of YouTube. Uh, And so in today's show, we are going to discuss the Manifesto, Article 2. And if you listen to our first episode, you'll know that uh, one of the documents on the Center for Baptist Renewal website is what we call uh, a Manifesto for Evangelical Baptist Catholicity. And this consists of 11 articles uh, in which we just lay out our basic beliefs and commitments, And so today for Article 2, we are talking about gospel centrality. And Article 2 reads this way. We affirm the centrality of the gospel, that is, the good news of salvation through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God for Christian faith, life, and worship. And so both here in this article and broadly uh, of course the, the title of the manifesto is a manifesto for evangelical baptist catholicity uh, so you so you hear it there we also you also hear it in our explanation of article 2 we're we're staking a claim for a specifically evangelical baptist catholicity there have been others who have uh, pursued baptist catholicity projects both inside and outside of north america and uh, they've they've done important work in this regard, but in CBR's work and in our our founding, uh, we feel like we're contributing something new to that conversation. In that we're we're pursuing Baptist Catholicity from a specifically evangelical perspective. And so, Luke, why do we use the term term evangelical? Um, tell us about how we're using that term, maybe allay some fears about what we might mean by that term. Talk to us about what we mean by evangelical.
1: Yeah. I mean, in one sense, I want to say maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it, it, only in the sense that I, if, when I hear the term evangelical or when we use it or we're asked about it, like I want to make like double sure people know what we mean, what we don't mean, uh, especially in this um, cultural climate. Um, where, you know, since the late 70s, evangelical Christian or born again Christian uh, has meant for most of America, something political. Um, and in even more recent days, it's, it's sort of been identified with one political party, one political movement. Um, and so I think a lot of people are, are calling it into question, wondering, like, has, has this term sort of outlived its usefulness? Um, and there are people, I think uh, younger uh, evangelicals are asking that. Um, African American uh, Protestants are asking that, you know whether that term even captures what they represent. Um, and those are valid questions, valid concerns, I think. Um, still in all, right? And I think we we still have retained it um, for for our statement and for our (laughs) our book. Right. And, and for what we're after here. And part of that is just maybe a stubbornness to say, I don't want to surrender this rich and beautiful term that has a history that goes back before uh, our lives. Um, I don't want to surrender that to, to politics. You know, this is not a podcast about politics. Just rest assured. We're not at all going to touch those issues. Um, at least not in any kind of partisan way um, but you know we want to just say well the the evangel uh, the gospel is a biblical word um, and and we just are using this term to say we're gospel people um, right and of, of course it has a, a history I mean uh, that again is broader than just the American politics I mean uh, evangelicalism uh, is sort of has been famously defined by uh, Baptist historian, David Bebbington. Um, and that his definition is debated these days and that's fine. Uh, but, you know, he f- sort of famously defines evangelical theologically, not just sociologically and, and politically, but in terms of uh, kind of four distinctives uh biblicism or commitment to scripture uh, as the source and norm for theology and practice, uh, Crucicentrism, a focus on the cross, the old rugged cross, the blood, you know, I, I pastored a church when I was in seminary and um, one of the older members of the church always used to say, I want to sing more of the blood songs, you know, um, and, and that's part of our DNA as, as evangelicals, as, as uh, whatever this movement is, is we're, we're cross people um, and con- the book, conversionism. The book, right?
0: the blood and...
1: What's that? The
0: the book, the blood, right. and okay. the blood. You, blo- you love
1: the alliteration. That's notions. right. That's right. Um, then conversionism, born again. Right there, there you go. go. There's another B. Um, I, don't gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you're gonna. I don't know how you can work this last one, but but I mean, so conversionism, just an emphasis on the the necessity of the new birth, right? Um, and that's partly bound up with revivalism. And, and kind of frontier evangelism, where there was sometimes too much of a focus on having some moving emotional experience. But at its best, evangelical theology has emphasized not just a, a moment of conversion, but um, the state of being converted. Someone who ac- actually has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, and that's not something that I want to give up. Um, right. And it's also,
0: it's also pushing back against nominal Christianity. Yeah. Right. So the yeah. true conversion, not just sort of, um, you know, state citizenship via baptism. Um, right. Actual fruit in a believer's life. Yep.
1: And that's something Baptists really can't give up and right. still be Baptist, you know, right. Um, the, the Baptist insistence on personal conversion uh, as a prerequisite to both baptism and Uh, church membership predates the transatlantic revivals, the great awakenings, whatever you want to call them. So to be a Baptist is to have this emphasis on the necessity of the new birth, the necessity of conversion. And then the last um, uh, in the quadrilateral is activism, which is basically just a life uh, lived out of that conversion, a life of good works, um, of holiness, service to others, and so, I mean, that, again, that that quadrilateral, that way of describing evangelical theology gets debated because other traditions outside of ours would also, in some sense, affirm those. But it's that unique cluster of emphases that grows out of the Reformation, pietism, the revivals, um, and then cer- certain aspects of, you know, post-World War II Um Neo-evangelical movements associated with Billy Graham and Carl Henry and so on. I mean, but it's all that history um, leads us to where we are today. And I, I just don't think that we need to dispense with that lightly. Um, right. So all that to say, we define evangelical uh, as, as being gospel people. We are people who are uh, yes. committed to the gospel as it's been understood throughout that long history.
0: Right. And I would also just add briefly that um, the term also indicates and, and points back to where we started with Article 1, which is the priority of God and His Word. So, you know, the first point that you mentioned of Bevington's quadrilateral, that we're, uh, that were marked by biblicism, a commitment to the Bible, uh, that's also important as we claim the term evangelical, that we're, we're using it in part... To hold things, hold certain commitments together related to how we view the authority of scripture, and then also how we view the centrality of the gospel and also the importance of its proclamation and um, the implications of it for society. So, we're holding all those things together with that term. Maybe one day will come where everybody decides to jettison it, but we haven't. So, as we're thinking about Terms, you know, we're saying we're evangelical precisely because of our commitment to these two things: uh, scriptural authority and the centrality of the gospel. So, you know, the, the next question I think would be: how do we define the gospel? And so, here, you know, there's a lot of different things we could talk about. Um, people define the gospel variously. People debate about what aspects of scripture kind of count as as gospel how to proclaim the gospel. Right, so there's a lot, of, um, a lot of issues at stake, a lot of conversations happening around that term gospel. And so we just very briefly, uh, in our explanation of this article, we define the gospel as the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And so even, even of course, that's not exhaustive, but it summarizes the whole of Christ's work. And, and that's what we're getting at when we say, uh, when we define the gospel that way, that it's what Christ does to bring the kingdom of God at hand. Uh, and so when we say gospel, we're saying this is the announcement of the king, that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person and work of Jesus. And of course, we could list out those aspects of his person, those aspects of his work. But the easiest way to summarize that is incarnation, life, death. Resurrection, no, no, uh, well,
1: no dissent there. No well, descent to I, the know, dead.
0: I mean, it is in that paragraph that we where we explain this article, and I'm pretty sure I put it there. Um, but yeah. yes, that would that would be included so, look, in Christ's work. Yes, absolutely. for those of you who don't
1: know, uh, Matt wrote a book on uh, Christ's descent to the dead. Where, you know what was happening to Jesus at, after he died on Good Friday, but before he rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday. So go buy it. Uh, InterVarsity Press. Um, <laughs> he descended to the dead. Yeah, uh, but that—that that was the joke there. So Matt, I can't believe didn't insist that we include the descent in the actual statement. But it, it's implied in this, right? Because it, it, yes. it, like, as Matt said, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a way of describing that the gospel is Jesus. like right? that, yes. that 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 that's what we're saying. Yes. The gospel is not, you know, a particular political posture. Mm. The gospel is not a particular. um view on predestination or you know like with the things that end up being put under the
0: rubric of gospel
1: right um no the gospel is jesus it's the person right. and work of jesus christ
0: right that's right yeah and so you know on, on the first point in terms of what we can list out i mean you could break out every part of that definition right so you could break out when we say we define the gospel as first the incarnation okay well we can break that out into um, the miraculous conception, into and then subsequently, of course, the virgin birth. We could, and then obviously, what's entailed in that, which is the hypostatic union. Uh, we could break life out into various parts, uh, miracles, teaching, obedience holy life, obedience. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we could break his death out into his passion, suffering, crucifixion, descent, and then resurrection. Actually, entails further action uh of course uh, really climactically it is the bodily resurrection from the dead but then you also uh would go on to talk about his bodily ascension into heaven and his current session at the right hand of the father and of course his bodily return when he comes back so um you know just to say even that summary right? We could say the gospel is Jesus, and then we could break that apart a bit and say the gospel is the person and work of Jesus, and then we could take those aspects, incarnate, you know, etc. So, um, but but really just to to take all that together and just say very, very, very simply that the gospel is the announcement that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then you made a, another point that it's not, um, what our view of predestination, and, and one of the ways we said this in the explanation is it's not a particular version of the Ordo Salutis, for example. Rather, what we mean by gospel is what the creed says, which is that Jesus came for us and for our salvation. And so creedal Christianity has confessed for the last two millennia that the, the, the crux of soteriology is simply that, that Jesus came and died for our sins, for us and for our salvation. Um, and, and, you know, our, our objective, I think, in defining this this way is, first of all, to be faithful to Scripture. But then secondarily, in terms of Catholicity, it's to say we can, we can be unified in the body of Christ, perhaps not denominationally, but in the very least universally in the body of Christ, if we agree on this basic definition of gospel. Now, I, I mean, I, at least it seems to me that people get tangled up in these various debates about, you know, again, for instance, the Ordo Salutis and almost anathematize each other uh, right. based on particular understandings. But really what we're trying to say is no, you don't anathematize each other over that because that's a particular understanding of what the more basic truth is, which is that Jesus came for us and for our salvation.
1: Yeah. It seems like some people want to um, expand the gospel and others want to truncate the gospel. Um, I mean, uh, on the, on the latter point, I mean, sometimes people, um, I mean, this, I I was just reminded of this as you were talking that um, you know, there was, a lot of debate last year over the publication of Matthew Bates' book on the gospel, um, and I don't want to rehash those debates unless you want to talk about it further. But um, it seems to me one of the things that happens in those sorts of debates is people are trying to, to to define too narrowly what the gospel is. You know, like the gospel is just, you know, Jesus is Lord, and that's it. Like, no, like we're like no salvific entailments are even mentioned as a part of the gospel. That's always just seen as an entailment of the gospel. Mm. Well, no, the good news, the heralding of good news implies within it as, as a constitutive part that it's about salvation, right? Mm. Uh, not just individual salvation. It also entails the, the redemption of a community, the church, and ultimately of the cosmos at the at the consummation of Christ's kingdom and his second coming. So it's not just a narrow individualism, but it does entail the, the good news that, you know, that, that God has done in Jesus Christ, what the law could not do, you know, as, mm. as, as, as is preached in the book of Acts, right. Yeah. The, 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 it's about salvation, right. I mean, Jesus, the good news, Paul defines in first Corinthians 15 is that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So yeah. it seems like sometimes people try to, to focus so narrowly, almost on, on just like uh, one linguistic term. Mm. Uh, and they're trying to sort of truncate, you know, what the gospel Means, right. and then others it seems like want to expand it like so. So it means almost any anything that I b- happen to believe at any given time is the gospel, right? It was, how many things have been included in this <laughs> list of well, this is a gospel issue, right? right. Everything's a gospel issue, right? Um, and in one sense, I mean everything is implicated by the, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But we we don't want to expand it to mean literally everything. Not even literally everything in the Bible, right? Because one of the things that the, the Protestant traditions have, have emphasized is there's at least some distinction between law and gospel. Mm. Now, I mean, there's different interpretations on what that means, but right. still not everything even in the Bible is the gospel. Some things are preparatory for the gospel. Mm. Some things are entailments of the gospel. So we're trying to find that right. biblical balance, I guess, saying like it's, it's not, we don't want to narrow it down. And there's multiple ways to do that. Right. I mean, and, and I think that's worth reflecting on too, not just, Sure. Uh, one particular way, but a lot of people want to say, well, the gospel is justification by faith alone or the gospel is penal substitution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we affirm those things, right? That's not, yes. that's not up for debate here. Right. Uh, but do we want to say that the definition of the gospel is picking out just one uh, salvific entailment? You see what I'm saying? Like, right. Those yeah. things are important. Um, uh, in terms of explaining what the gospel is, um, but we don't want to we don't want to expand have such an expansive definition of the gospel that it just it covers everything that we believe about salvation.
0: Right. Yeah. In in my pneumatology and soteriology class here, uh, I rely on Greg Allison and his summary of the seven facets of soteriology throughout church history. And I, th- I think this is helpful to think about in terms of just the expansiveness of what Christ's work accomplishes. He, he lists expiation, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, victory, example, and exchange. And, you know, I, I think that just about covers it. Um, you could, you know, break any of those down in particular ways and define them, um, you know, appropriately and biblically. You know, but for example, the point you made about um the the Jesus is lord crowd uh of course that's part of what Christ accomplishes in his work is that he's king over all things uh but that's not the only thing he accomplishes and that's not the only only thing he's doing in his work uh and and here i think jeremy treats book the crucified king i don't know if you've read that luke but um i i find that book really helpful in in sort of tying these pieces together because he specifically takes penal substitution and um, Christus Victor and, and and weds them together in a way that I think is biblically and theologically um, not only sound, but, but really just perfect. So uh, that's an example, I think of trying to do these things together, hold them together and show all the things that Christ accomplishes in his incarnation. Right.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that we, uh, sort of closer to home, like evangelical Christians very often will have our own truncated version of the gospel where the gospel is just the death of Christ and not the resurrection of Christ or the Mm -hmm. life of Christ, where the gospel is just about penal substitution and not about the other uh, atonement themes in Scripture, or the gospel is just about the forensic element of Mm -hmm. of salvation and not also the transformative element. Right, it's actually good news that Jesus didn't just die to pay the penalty for our sins, but He came to set us free from its captivity. You know, right. that's good news too. Right, um, and so we kind of have our own versions of these truncated gospels. Um, whereas, if we keep Jesus at the center, right, if we keep mm. if we keep the centrality of the person and work of Jesus, that entails all of these other all of the aspects. We hold right. it together in Christ, which is exactly what we believe the Bible is is doing as well. Right, the Bible. Finds its its center, its focus, its scope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So yeah. the central message of the Bible, the gospel, had better do the same thing.
0: Yeah, and I, I personally, I think that one of the reasons why we tend to truncate Christ's work is a the two, a twofold problem, which is really one problem in and of itself, and that we don't read the Bible, we read parts of the Bible, and. When we read the Gospels, we read the crucifixion scenes when we read the Gospels. Um, and when we read the Old Testament, we read the parts that we know point to the crucifixion scenes in the Gospel, right? So, And we when we read the epistles, we read them for debates about Ordo Salutis, and we read them to focus on conversations about justification, propitiation, this sort of thing. When in reality, if we read sort of cover to cover, so to speak, what we would see is that in Christ, God is restoring everything that Adam lost in the fall. And Adam didn't just lose his own individual standing before God. The fall affected all of creation. Uh, The fall affected his relationship with the only other human being on the planet. And the fall affected... His relationship with God and Eve's relationship with God. So, and his relationship to the earth. And his relationship yeah. to creation itself. Yeah, right. that's right. So um, when we think about it that way, and when we, when we start to read the Bible in, in terms of understanding what God was doing in Genesis 1 and 2, what Adam lost in the fall in Genesis 3, and then how the Abrahamic covenant, which of course Christ fulfills, is intended to reverse the curse of Adam. And then you go and look at what Jesus does and you see how he's doing those things. That, that helps us, I think too, in terms of not truncating uh, uh, the gospel.
1: Right. Do you think there is a danger? um, I mean, I'm kind of setting out two dangers there, right? One is too narrow, but then the other is too broad. What's the danger on the broad, on the too broad sense where too many things kind of crowd in?
0: Yeah. I think there's a few different things. I think that if we don't keep the focus on the person and work of Jesus, we can make other either entailments of the gospel or implications of the gospel or effects of the gospel or particular beliefs about how the gospel is worked out in a believer's life. We can make any of those sort of tangential but still important issues more central than they actually should be. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, Spurgeon is famously quoted as saying, "You know, Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism is the gospel." Right. Well, that that that, that to me is taking something that's tangential to the person and work of Jesus, which is how it's applied to the believer's life, and and making it central. Right. Um, I, I think when you look at sort of the um, how do do I want to put this, Uh, the blog content mill of X is a gospel issue posts. You know, that's another way that we're too expansive with what the gospel is. And so if you say something like, uh, I don't know, helping the poor is a gospel issue. Let's let's use that as an example. Uh, Well, certainly uh, helping the poor is, I think, a product of a gospel changed person, right? So there's no doubt that there's biblical commands to help the poor. Uh, But when we say helping the poor is a gospel issue, I think even the title alone can misconstrue what you're trying to say. Many people who use that formula, aren't trying to say something like this. Um, If you don't help the poor, then you can't be saved. Right? So What they're doing in that kind of title, even if they don't mean it this way, is they're taking an ethical entailment of a gospel conversion and saying justification by gospel belief plus this particular kind of fruit um, as well. And of course, there's all kinds of things to say about if you have a good root, you're going to have good fruit and all the rest of it, right? But the point is we're not justified by faith plus this particular work, which is what can be maybe unintentionally implied by that kind of formula. The other, yeah. the other problem I think, and really this is, this is maybe hit closer to home in some ways, at least it is for me. The other problem that I, I think we have with this formula is often what is coming alongside of that particular kind of formula, like helping the poor is a gospel issue, is not just the concept of helping the poor, but a particular way, and, and usually a particular political position, that's required for you to do that. Right. So even if, even if this post, this fictive post um, clarifies abundantly that they don't mean justification by faith plus this work, right. Um, There's still this kind of idea that if you don't uh, take a particular political stance on social security or on uh, particular ways of distributing welfare, or you know, social safety nets, or whatever that you actually don't believe the gospel. And so, it, I think that's the real danger in terms of expanding the gospel too far today is equating our own pati- particular political proclivities with the good news of Jesus.
1: Yeah, but that I can so. happen on the left and the right. You know, it's yes. not just it's not just sort of the progressive. Wing who are, who are going to say, you know, you have to support right some set of social policies. But also, you know, on, on the right end of the spectrum, you get the same kind of, you know, the gospel demands a particular vote be cast in the ballot box or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Um, right. And we've, you know, promised to keep this above politics. Um, at I do, least partisan politics. I mean, I, yeah. politics. <laughs> I, mean I, do,
0: I, I do think, though, that um, at least in our context, the particular danger in terms of having a gospel definition that's too expansive is seen most readily in our, in our politics.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, That may not be true elsewhere, but I do think it's true in our context. Yeah. I
1: mean, I I told some students the other day, like that, that basically in America politics is our religion. It's our, it's the new religion. Right. Um, And that's true for the left and the right. Um, Yeah, And you know, we, we, if we're going to be gospel people, then we, it, it, Politics is implicated in in the gospel. Uh, So sometimes we kind of, I will sometimes um, use the terms interchangeably, but there's a difference between like partisanship, Mm. that kind of politics, and just the political implications of the call of Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, you go, go read the stories of the martyrs. Uh, in the early uh, centuries mm-hmm. of the church, uh, the gospel entails certain political ramifications. Some people lost their life for the sake of the gospel. yes, um, so we we can't escape politics in that broadest sense of how how the gospel implicates um, our relationship to our community, to the broader society. Um, but you know, equating it with a particular policy prescription, you know, right. or a particular partisan posture, uh, that's where we're adding to you know, we're adding to the gospel in a way that, again, undercuts. I mean, I think one of the things, the reason why we began after God and the word, right, is the gospel. Because the gospel ought to be not a source of divisiveness, but a source of unity, right? right? I mean, obviously, there's some division that needs to take place between those who affirm the gospel and those who don't, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, mm-hmm. but a sword, right? right. Uh, to, to divide a man from his own household if necessary, right? Right. Um, So I'm not talking about that kind of rightful division over the truth, but I'm talking about a divisiveness. Sometimes the way we tease out the implications of soteriology, uh, especially as we equate those with the gospel and everything gets ramped up to this sort of highest level, Mm. um, then um, ironically and, and tragically, we can take what should be the root of all Christian unity and turn it into a, a cause for divisiveness.
0: Yeah, that's right. So let's, let's flip the question a little bit. What are the dangers that you see of truncating the gospel? So gospel too expansive political persuasions become sacrosanct. What about truncating it? What are the dangers there?
1: Yeah. I mean, this goes back to that one, um, what one, one side of Bevington's quadrilateral crucicentrism. Um, and that may be a faithful description of evangelical theology historically, but I've wondered sometimes um, if if we shouldn't at least try to um, expand that a bit to um, a Christocentrism and not just a, a cross-centeredness, but a Christ-centeredness. Uh, so I think one of the dangers if 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 you just think um, that the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that if I believe in him, I'll go to heaven, which is often how we hear the gospel.
0: Right. It's also true.
1: It's true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, But if, if it's reduced to that, then what's lost is the glories of Christ because Christ is more glorious than the, as central as the cross is. And we're not trying to displace the centrality of the cross. I mean, there's a sense in which, for Paul, anyway, when he talks about boasting in the cross, you know, knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified, there's a sense in which the cross of Christ for Paul um, is a kind of um, uh, stand-in. Is synecdoche, is that the right term? Sure. Or like a part is yeah, put in for the whole. Or I
0: don't know. Uh, we both uh, have PhDs, but obviously they didn't help us very much. I forget
1: those literary devices, but I think it's synecdoche, yeah. where a part is 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 sort of a, a stand-in for the whole. And for, right. for for Paul, that's often I think how the cross or or the death of Christ functions is it's kind of a a, a stand-in, the central part of the whole work of Christ, right? Because right. the crucifixion of Christ obviously implies the resurrection of Christ, and vice right. versa. Uh, which obviously implies something about who this Jesus is, what he did before he died, what he's doing now, what he's going to do in the future. Yeah. So is, is crucicentrism is, cru, is fine, a cross-centered approach is fine, provided we see it sort of as kind of the, I used to work at a, at a jewelry store when I was in college. So I think about it in, in these terms, as long as it's sort of like the diamond that's set in this ornate mounting, right? This ornate setting. Uh, the cross is is at the center of it, but that you have the, these riches around Christ's work on the cross um, that we we miss if we just say Jesus died on the cross from our from my sins. Yeah. Jesus also became incarnate, uniting divinity and humanity in His person. Jesus also lived a perfect life of law keeping obedience, so that His perfect record of righteousness can be imputed to you. His so called active righteousness, active obedience. Right. Uh, can be credited to you. He mm. also, on the other side of death, underwent a burial and, dis- and descent to the dead in our place, blazing the trail through through death into resurrection on our behalf. Mm. He's ascended to the Father's right hand so that Paul can say, even now we are seated with him in heavenly places. In his session at the Father's right hand, he continues his ongoing priestly work through intercession. Like any good priest, he not only makes oblation for our sins and atonement for our sins, but he also... Uh, intercedes on our behalf and he's coming yeah. again one day to save us and to consummate right. this kingdom and usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. So if you just focus on one aspect of that, then you miss the glories yeah. Of, yeah. of Christ. And I don't want, I don't want to uh, diminish any of Christ's glories. So right. that's why a truncated gospel is, is, is um what, what kind of implicate like
0: what kind of, uh, so there's a, there's an aspect to this truncated gospel that's, Dangerous I don't know if that's too strong a term, but dangerous because it reduces our our worship of Christ and our knowledge of him. What about practically in the life of the believer what does that what does that do for somebody um if they if they truncate it? The thought that comes to my mind is um it can lead in many cases to a kind of easy believism. uh one saved always saved kind of belief that's not tied to an actual robust understanding of the perseverance of the saints, but simply, Hey, if I just believe this in my head, this fact uh, of, of the death of Christ and that it forgives my sins, then I go to heaven and go to heaven can mean a whole host of things. So at least for me, um, a, a lack of understanding of the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of Christ's work, could lead, doesn't have to, but could lead to some kinds of easy believism. Can you think of yeah. anything else that we could add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think an over
1: um, emphasis on individualism and a kind of quietism where people just say, you know, let's, we're just winning souls, you know. Um, you know, like I heard somebody give the illustration one time where you don't change the wallpaper in a hotel room because you're just sort of passing through uh you don't that's not your home you know um Mm -hmm. and so it's it's almost like a a diminishment uh i mean this is related to what you're saying with easy believism but it's sort of like a um a diminished view of of the life of good works under the lordship of christ um loving and serving our neighbor caring for creation you know all the things that we do in obedience to christ before the final judgment um So a kind of withdrawal from life and just to focus on saving, saving souls, you know? Yeah. Um, And obviously saving souls is, is not like small potatoes. You know, it's not like that. Some tangential thing. I mean, like we want to, we want to see individuals, men and women, boys and girls repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ. So that no matter what happens to them in this life, even if they die in poverty and destitution, Uh, they'll have the hope of eternal life on the other side of death. And so that's obviously eternally important. Right. Right. Um, But a truncated gospel, if you just reduce the gospel to, you know, to sort of the forensic, the legal dimensions of, Mm -hmm. of, of Christ's work, so that it's just about securing salvation on the other side of death, then you lose the transformative dimensions that actually affect the here and now. Right. Um, So you, you can lose not just, Um, you can lose even the entailments of the gospel, right? I think it it is proper to make a distinction between the gospel and its entailments. Right. Um, But you don't even have entailments if you, if you reduce the gospel down so much that it's just about going to heaven when you die.
0: Right. Yeah. A couple of things came to mind as you're saying that Uh, on on the one hand, um, we do want to say that conversion of a person's heart and soul is of paramount importance, right? Above and beyond the importance of any kind of transformation that occurs. Um, it, that, that kind of transformation can only occur truly and lastingly upon actual true spiritual conversion of the person. So, you know, you can't have transformation, true transformation and transformation that lasts without spiritual conversion. And so, you know, we do want to say spiritual conversion is of primary importance, but it should entail sanctification basically right Right. Uh, but the other thing that hit me is that if if we take this kind of truncated view of of christ's work it leads to a truncated view of conversion and what that means which then also leads to a kind of truncated version of ecclesiology right why do we gather as a church well i guess so that we can just simply proclaim this forensic transaction to more people um, and so the, the edification of believers in the context of the local body gathered um, is lost in, in a lot of ways. If we reduce the gospel down to just Jesus died for your sins, hmm. if you don't want to go to hell, believe.
1: Yeah, yeah that's right. We, we can then see the church as kind of um, just a means to some other end. You know, like the, the church is, is just a means to evangelism. Mm. um when there's a sense in which um it's just the opposite right evangelism is a means to the church right what we're inviting people into in evangelism is to a community of faith that has been transformed by the grace of jesus christ right, right. and it's and it's in that that context that that crucible that our our sins are are um are taken away and we're purified in life and 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 are thinking and are speaking and our acting and we are more conformed to the image of Christ. Like evangelism services the church in some right. ways, right? Rather than the opposite. Right. Whereas very often we hear people say this, well, the church is not for you believer. The church is just about preaching yeah. the gospel to the lost. Um, well, I mean, I, I understand that the, the, the great commission is the, the, the summons, the orders that we've been received from Christ. Uh, but it's also to what we're inviting them to is Christ and his body right you know so it's not just about seeing the church as kind of as you said like we have a, a, this truncated view of of the right. church and the spirit and the and the christian life but i mean that's why we're emphasizing here the gospel is central as we put it here for christian faith life and worship like it's mm. it's not just it's not just the initiation mm-hmm. but it's it's the power that sustains us it's sort of the power that keeps the lights on Right. Uh, to think about the church building, right? Um or that keeps the heat on. Right now our right. church is getting a, a new heater, and so we we've had a cold sanctuary for uh, a few weeks. Um but you know the 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 gospel is is the the power that keeps the heat on in the church. Right. It's it's not just the door to the church. Right. Um but it's it's the very life within, you know. So it sustains us throughout every phase, not just at the beginning.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I you know, we may come back to this when we get into the points about worship and liturgy and whatnot. Um, But it, it seems like, you know, churches can fall into one of two errors. And you really could say that maybe this is unfair to some churches, but by and large, mainline churches have focused on the people who are already there to the detriment of the proclamation of the gospel to bring new converts in Whereas Baptists and other free church traditions have focused so much on bringing converts in that they've forgotten the the kind of edifying work that's needed in the gathering of the local body. Mm. And true gospel proclamation and true, like you just said, a, a true understanding of the centrality of the gospel doesn't ever let go of the importance of the proclamation of the gospel to the lost. But it also recognizes that the, the believer, every believer throughout space and time and every gathered congregation needs the gospel to grow in Christ and to sustain their ministry. So hmm. if, if we truly keep the gospel central, uh, that actually provides the fuel and the means by which we continue to follow the Great Commission and we grow together as a local body of Christ.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What kind of people do you think the gospel should make? I mean, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes the people who are are the most vociferous in their defense of the gospel and its various <laughs> entailments. Synecdoche, uh, vociferous <laughs> boy, <do>. howdy! <laughs> Son, you from Alabama. Oh yeah, I learned a <laughs> thing or a thing or two over the years. Um, but some people that are maddest about you know, defending the gospel don't seem like they've they've been very gripped by the gospel. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I'm not well, trying to. Luke,
0: well Luke, if you want to speak the truth in love, that just means speaking the truth. <laughs> right. Say mean, it however it, you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems doesn't it seem like people who are gospel people ought to be gracious with others? Yeah. You know, ought, ought to be kind, patient, long suffering.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Not not ready, not quick to pounce. I mean, I and not listen, I I'm including myself in this little sermonette, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's not like I've arrived, but I mean, it it just seems to me like there's so many books and, and ministries and, and agendas that get a gospel hyphen attached to it, right? Gospel driven, um, gospel centered, and I rejoice in all that, but it seems to me like people who are truly gospel driven, gospel centered will just be absolutely dumbstruck that God was gracious to me, right. even to me, you know, like right. God forgave my sin, not right. just sin in general, but my specific transgressions, right. My, my specific sins and thought, word, and deed, God forgave me. So why would I not extend that same love and grace and compassion to others? Why, why shouldn't gospel people of all right. people be, be willing to be, Counterculturally kind.
0: Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's this kind of, I, I just said it, but there's this goofy idea out there that when Paul says, speak the truth in love, it just means speak truth because that is love. Mm. When in fact, you know, what, what Paul is doing is, is giving a, a, um, a kind of qualitative descriptor to speaking truth. Right. When when you speak truth, it ought to be done so like this. And uh, you know, it, it's not a. Those two things are not metonyms, right? They're they're not saying the same thing, um, but in different ways. And if you go and read First Corinthians thirteen, which you alluded to, or if you go read um, spiritual gifts in Galatians five, you know, th- I mean it's very clear that there's a kind of quality that's attached to speaking truth. And I mean, look, I'm sure you'd agree, we're committed to speaking truth, right? Um, we teach, that's our job, is to, is to teach students the truth about God's word and theology. And we think these things are of utmost importance. At the same time, we can't do that in such a way that it denies the truth that we're speaking. Right. And I mean, Paul, yeah.
1: Paul also, like when he talks about like correcting others, mm-hmm. he says to do so with humility and gentleness.
0: Right. He and says like, he comes to the Thessalonians as a nursing mother. Yeah. I mean, like there's all kinds of passages that we could point to to say, and this is, what I, <laughs> this is what I tell my students. Maybe I should admit this in a permanently online way. But I, I, what I say to my students is don't be theological jack wagons. You know, I mean that 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 totally defeats the purpose of what we're doing. Right. And and I think people have mistaken being a bulldog for truth for actually speaking the truth in love.
1: Yeah.
0: And and the former actually negates the ability to do the latter. So I, I think we should stand for truth. I think we should be committed to truth. I think we should be committed to biblical. Theologically sound definitions of the gospel, priority of God's word, all that. But we can communicate those things in such a way that we're not denying them as we're speaking them.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we say things like this, sometimes, you know, we're accused of being the tone police. As if it's merely a matter of tone, you know, like, no, it's not a matter of tone, it's a matter of obedience. Right. Do you want to treat people with love? Right. So they actually feel loved. <laughs> you right. know, like, it's, yeah, that's if, actually it, a it matter of the claimed, heart. If you claim to love someone who never feels loved by you, then you're probably mistaken. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not just a matter of tone or a matter of like winsomeness. Right. It's not just a, it's not just sort of like a, a pragmatic, um, well, we're going to garner goodwill by being gracious. No. It, it's, it's a substantive change that has, that has happened in the hearts of believers. Right. And of course, again, we all need to grow in this. I need to grow in this. I mean, right? Um, especially yeah, in our online interactions. I mean, where right. you know, our true selves kind of come out uh, without the filter of of face to face interactions. But boy, we just need to recognize that belligerence is not the same thing as faithfulness.
0: Right. That's right. And I, you know, it, it's ultimately a matter of the heart, in my mind. Um, it, it's it's not about tone. It's not, I mean, it is about obedience, but ultimately obedience arises out of a changed heart. Mm. And so the question for me, when I see people who are being bulldogs for truth is, you know, do you actually love the people that you're
1: Mm. uh,
0: speaking to? And I, you know, honestly, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think a lot of these people online that act like this are deluded about what they're doing. Mm. I, I think they would answer, oh, well, of course I love the person because I'm telling them the truth, right? But wh- I want to go back to what we said in the beginning, which is that Paul, over and over, not just in uh, Ephesians 4, but over and over, he he speaks about the the quality of your speech, not just the content of it. Mm. And when I see people, you know, quote tweeting and mic dropping and accusing everybody that they talk to, no matter who it is, of being false teachers and liars and whatever else. I mean, that's not a quality that presents itself as speaking the truth in love or as being patient and kind or as bearing with one another or as faithful, joyful, peaceful. I mean, none none of that's evident in those kinds of interactions. So it has nothing to do with tone. I mean, to me, tone is a matter of, you know, how direct you might be or um, the kinds of language you might use if somebody sensitive to it. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your actual heart attitude that's on display towards the other person that you're talking right. to. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a matter of the heart, which leads to obedience, uh, and it should be one in which we speak the truth in love. Mm. That's what gospel people should look like. Right. And I, I, mean, I, I mean, I fail all the time. That's why I'm not on Twitter because I'm terrible at it. Uh, but yeah, that's what we should strive for. And ultimately, yeah. you know, gospel centrality in that regard, right? Where the gospel is central, not just to our belief system, but to our, our being oh. and our being in the world with one another. That's the, the avenue to Baptist Catholicity. Mm. If we're truly people of the book and people of the blood and people of the blessed hope, right, then we can respond to others who disagree with us doctrinally or whatever uh, with humility and with love and with kindness.
1: Mm.
0: so Gospel centrality not only is a tenet of evangelical Baptist Catholicity, but like you said earlier, it's the fuel right the fuel for our churches, it's the fuel for our individual sanctification, it's the fuel for our project.
1: Yeah and that's you know another emphasis that I think is not not uniquely Baptist but it's one that Baptists have long um, stressed that the the true worship is um, internal. Like Jesus said you know the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth Right, Um, and that it's you know we're going to talk some uh, when we get to liturgy and that sort of thing about external forms, and there are certainly external acts of worship, you know, preaching the sacraments, et cetera. Uh, but those things uh, are only beneficial to us if we are, are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and oriented towards this internal worship, a heart that is open, not just to jotting uh, our eyes and crossing our T's doctrinally, but a heart that is open to the transforming work of of Jesus Christ.
0: That's right. Well, uh, we're running long in the tooth here, so uh, I'm going to close us out. And I I hope that I remember to do this most of the time, (laughs) but I want to close us with the grace uh, from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. So, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.